You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 41 and we're your hosts, Brandon and Allison. And uh, yeah, we're, we have an exciting topic for today. Yeah, I'm really excited about to talking about this. We've mentioned it a few times in the past few episodes. No, I mean, so now my... we get to dive into it with one whole episode about it. Yeah, and the it is, you know, maybe not as exciting when people just hear the word, you know, bacteriosins. I mean, that might not sound like the most exciting thing, but uh, you're going to share with us a little bit more about what bacteriosins are and then why they are actually interesting, right? Right, right. Um, as we'd mentioned before, and I think it was episode 38, 39, um, a few episodes back, but there was a brief mention of bacteriosins. Um, and those are really uh, proteins um, that bacteria or microorganisms produce as a way to protect themselves from um, yeast and bacteria, other types of bacteria and molds. Um, so it's a natural byproduct that they make um, to whether they realize they're making it or not. Yeah, maybe unconsciously it's just happening. It's a protection. And at the same time, it's not only protecting them, but it's also, as far as I understand, in a lot of cases, it's protecting the food that we are then fermenting or the drink that we're fermenting. Uh, the the byproducts of uh, these bacteriosins uh, are protecting the food from other microorganisms, which then protect us from contamination or sickness. Would that be right? Right. Yeah. And most of the stuff, most of these bacteriosins um, are, I believe they're mostly proteins, um, but they're uh, naturally used to also protect us. Again, what you said um, from other harm, it's mostly for harmful bacteria um, like uh, bacillus um, and all of those bad bacteria that send us to the hospital with food poisoning. Now, so the bacteriosins are in food, and I'm assuming with all the the up-and-coming research on the microbiome, I'm assuming that there's bacteriosins that are being um, in, in our gut and elsewhere on our body, that the bacteriosins also play a, a factor in that food and elsewhere? It's sure, just like, sure. It's, like a, it's a protective thing of microorganisms in general, correct? Yeah, I believe so. I don't really know much about, um, you know, there's so much research going on about the you know, bacterial biome inside of your body. But I'm sure that, you know, I, not all bacteria make these proteins, but I'm sure they, there's a lot of bacteria in your body and your gut that produces them to help ward off, um, you know, illnesses and um, food poisoning and other types of harmful bacteria. So but that's, um, a, that's a key point though, that it sounds like, so not all bacteria create bacteriosins, um, but then, yeah, but, but I'll, I'll, a lot of the, would you say that a lot of the bacteria in the foods that we ferment, that they do create those, or is it still a very small niche that actually do create that? You know, I think it's kind of a small niche of bacteria. I don't think that it's all types of bacteria that's found in fermented products, but, um, I, I, I think it's types of back you know different types of strange i think just through um evolution and um changing in in how they've been developed and strain it might be just strain specific um like as i mentioned before when they're making it when people are fermenting salamis and different types of fermented meats they add certain types of bacteria just for that reason for because they do produce these uh proteins that protect the food um 
by lowering the pH or really what happens is um, they produce these proteins um, and then other harmful types of bacteria. Somehow it they consume it or I don't know if it, it disrupts, you know, this goes into biochemistry, which um, I'm not quite sure the mechanism of how they inhibit or kill off bad bacteria. But um, it's a really interesting topic that I, I wish I had spent some more time on before we uh, we started this podcast. Um, but it's, I mean, if I think it's just, it, I don't know if it's very specific um, to who or what, or um, I'm not sure. Would <laughs> you say rambling now? It, it, well, and that's, and that's uh, totally fine. I mean, it, it's seems that in, in regard to you're saying meat specifically that certain bacteria are being chosen so that they keep the meat safe. And I don't think there's really been a, a podcast episode on meat fermentation specifically uh, as, as the focus of the entire episode. So that'd be a good thing to do in the, in the future as well. And, and part of the reason why that's not a, a huge focus is one, because I really haven't done much with uh, meat fermentation and also because there's a few more things to be aware of. It's not quite as lackadaisical as doing some other kinds of ferments like vegetables, especially where relatively safe. And um, I guess I'm still not certain if, if in vegetable ferments, if they really are, there are many bacteriosins being produced by the bacteria, like lactic acid bacteria. It seems like instead of bacteriosins, they're producing lactic acid. Uh, and then that's kind of more, would you say that that's, synonymous yeah, with bacteriosins a, like it's a it's similar in this in in the idea that it's protected for the bacteria yeah and it might just be um environmental uh environmentally a situation where maybe this type of bacteria only produces the the mechanism for the bacteriosin to turn on again this goes into biochemistry might be that it's in just when it's in a certain type of environment like a meat fermentation Whereas if maybe you use that same bacteria for a sauerkraut or vegetable fermentation, they may not have that um, bacteriosin mechanism turn on. I don't know. I mean, okay, maybe so... it could just be specific for the type of food that it's being, um, that it's present with. And meat for sure is, uh, is one, or that is one type of food that, that does turn it on. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But I don't, I mean, that's a good that's a good thing to look up and maybe we can follow up with that and see if it is um, specific to the media that it's in, or maybe it's the bacteria itself that's producing this um, bacteriosin. Yeah. I would definitely say for this episode, I have more questions than, than answers or, or, or knowledge in regard to it, but it's something that, again, it's about bringing the, the world of microorganisms and, and looking at it maybe in a little bit more of an anthropomorphic sense of how they're battling it out and, or, or just uh, making peace with each other. However, a person wants to look at it half full, half empty glass, but it's one of those things where it's so easy to forget all the different factors that are, are, are going on on the microscopic level when fermenting and especially when fermenting meat, because there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's just that, that transformation I would say in meat is, is rather drastic sometimes because the, especially longer uh, ferments between the raw product and the finished fermented meat seems pretty drastic sometimes. So in order to keep something like meat, which is a pretty good product for uh, like a, food source for a lot of different things, a lot of decomposing mm -hmm. microbes. So it makes sense that 
it would take an even bigger shield of sorts or, or bigger defenses to, to protect meat. And like you're saying, maybe it turns on in some vegetables or, or dairy or otherwise, but for the most part, meat is something that it's, that's, that's like going out into dangerous enemy territory. Um, and you better come prepared with, with guns loaded and, and, and ready to fight. Uh, right. And, and so that's kind of how I'm envisioning the, the bacteriosins, at least in meat. Yeah, I mean, back meat. We should probably have an entire episode on meat fermentations because I've never really played around with them. Um, I remember, you know, learning about them in school, but it was never such a. It was more of just like a brief mentioning of it. Um, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot more, a lot more um, air can be associated with meat fermentations. I think um, just because it is the environment can is so conducive to everything. Well, and you talk about people being afraid of fermentation in general and leaving things on the, the counter. I would say with vegetables, you know, as it's been said many times throughout these podcasts, it's really, there's, there's very, very little that can go wrong. Um, you know, uh, danger wise, but you know, that's, that's where meat does become a little bit more of a, of, of a challenge because it's like, so people that are afraid of vegetables, I mean, I can't even imagine how much fear there would be of, of leaving, leaving meat out right, at, right. at temperatures to ferment. So I think people are just nervous about leaving meat out in general, if they're even going to cook it. It's, I mean, I think there's been so much, um, you know, in the news, it's not, it's not negative stuff, but you hear about food poisoning and, um, E. coli and salmonella poisoning all the time from, from meat. So I think that already has a high, it's a high risk situation to ferment it. Um, personally, (laughs) whereas, you know, in, in vegetables, it really is kind of the opposite way. I mean, there's all those news reports and otherwise throughout the years of, of different vegetables or fruits, uh, fresh vegetables and fruits that are causing, sickness and food poisoning. And so in essence, the fermentation almost makes them, them safer in a lot of, a lot of senses, because even, even, even most likely if a, if a food is in, would cause food poisoning when fresh, once fermented in the proper environment. And I mean, if, if it doesn't ferment well, it like a person's nose, I feel would be able to tell that it, something didn't go right. But, you know, as long as the, the final product smells and, and looks like, sauerkraut should look i mean a lot less likelihood i feel to get sick from um from sauerkraut than from from even fresh cabbage not that there's a huge risk in either but um you know i just think that like some things are are one way and some are the other like meat is kind of the opposite leave it out for longer yeah there's more chance of maybe getting sick but is or more to follow in order not to right right yeah it's just an interesting world of fresh food and contamination versus fermented food and contamination. Because um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about that when I was doing some research and looking in some old school notes um, about bacteriosins was also um, protective inhibitors that the food itself makes um, to protect itself from other types of bacteria. Now, would these kind of keep it from even fermenting like as a resistant factor? Now, would these be the so-called antimicrobial properties of certain foods, such as garlic or onion, or are those other? Uh, are no, these... it's, it's exactly like that. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, are are all antimicrobial actions of of produce or or food are all of those bacteriosins? No, I think it's one of those one of those things. Like, if it's a bacteriosin, it's not a. a 
or it's a, if it's a inhibitor, it's not a bacteriosin, but all bacteriosins are inhibitors. One of those things, like it doesn't fall into a general category, like uh, natural food inhibitors. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, so you're saying food has inhibitors. It doesn't have bacteriosins. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they're mostly enzymes, um, and enzymes are really big sacks of, uh, proteins that help make, um, chemical reactions happen faster. Um, like one of the thing, one of the examples I found, um, are enzymes and other proteins in milk and eggs that inhibit microorganisms, like the white part of, um, or like the, I mean, if you crack open the egg, the clear part that's on that around the outside, um, the albumin binds with vitamins within the egg that keeps it from making those vitamins available for bacteria. Um, so I guess maybe they're not not all in, in, in natural inhibitors. Um, they in effect help um, or reduce bacteria or microorganisms from growing. Because in essence, an, an egg, much like a seed, if uh, fertilized, I mean, it's, it's meant to be a food source for the, the little baby chick in there that's gonna, going to grow as opposed to if, if microorganisms were able to start digesting that, then the, the chick wouldn't have anything to eat. And so that makes sense. And, and would, would seeds be similar in, in that sense? The protective barriers are and, – and what is the difference between – like, is there a difference on the microbial scale of a inhibitor, like say uh, an enzyme or, or something like that, and then just a, a wall? Or, or is there no such thing for a, a microscopic wall of sorts? Like, I mean, uh, because I think of enzymes as, or these Im- inhibitors being more of things kind of uh, being sent out um, as opposed to like, do they have anything that is just kind of stagnant? Like I've got a, a, a bulletproof, a, a microbial proof wall that I put up and I'm safe or sure, no, like, um, the outside of the seed itself is, is an inhibitor for other types of, for, you know, birds and, um, bacteria because it's a hard surface. It's, you, you know, it's kind of like your house. Um, you protect everything that's inside your house, um, with walls and windows and a security system and, um, those types of things. Uh, the same thing as, um, you know, fruit have, hard outer casing well not hard um like an orange has a rind that you peel off um and then all the good stuff's on the inside so it's kind of like that too where um foods have these natural protectants and barriers like what you're talking about to protect it from from whatever birds or us or bacteria mold yeasts so that i'm hearing trying to separate these all in my own mind there are differences between barriers inhibitors and bacteriosins, correct? Yes. They're all separate things, but they're all ways of either a food source or a bacteria, a microorganism to protect themselves from other microorganisms that want to digest uh, whatever kind of food source those inhibitors, barriers, or bacteriosins are trying to block against. Yeah. Um, so it's more of the barrier. There's a natural barriers that the fruit let's let's just use a simple example of like the orange i was talking about um so when the 
when the orange is growing on a tree, it creates that rind and that protects the fruit um, and gives it time to grow and to get, um, you know, produce seeds so that the fruit will eventually fall on the ground, decompose, and those seeds will be um, somehow fertilized so that you can make more orange trees. Um, so the outside of the fruit is a natural barrier to protect it from birds and um, microorganisms, mostly molds, um, anything that can get to the seeds, because basically the tree itself just wants to reproduce and um, have more, more trees. Um, so that's a barrier, a natural barrier that the tree produces. Now, if you take um, the orange and you take off the rind and um, you want to, um, you know, have some type of fermentation, there might be something inside of um, the, the orange itself. I mean, this is kind of way out there, but let's say there's like cinnamon or cloves or some other type of natural compound within the orange. I guess orange essence um, could be an, an antimicrobial, but that's produced too to help or keep bacteria from growing um, and letting the fruit survive even longer. And then bacteriosins are things the bacteria produce themselves to protect themselves from other species of bacteria or mold or yeast. Does, is that explain it a little better too? Yeah, that that works. And and okay. uh, once the with all of those layers of of trying to get to things, it seems that once the bacteria are are at least successful enough to be in some kind of food source or, or some kind of place that's a, a happy environment to be. It seems that, uh, well, again, I think I'm still trying to, to wrap my mind around are bacteriosins only for the good guy, uh, bacteria, like ones that are generally going to be pretty good for, or for us, or do any of the, the kind of nasty, or I guess that's kind of a simplistic way to look at it because some micro right. microorganisms are, are good in some instances and, and not so good in others. But, um, are there any that really stand out that are uh, that they also have bacteriosins, but they're kind of the villains of microbes or is it? You know, really I'm not, not quite sure about that. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure how to, what the answer to that question is. We'll have to look it up. I know I'm trying to anthropomorphize. I'm trying to turn this into like, I don't know, a, a movie or a comic book or something, but it just, it seems to, they just, microbes just seem to, fit that inside my mind. They just, they just seem like they're that kind of, they're characters in a, in a book. Oh, I mean, I think it totally falls in. You're thinking the right way. I mean, I think of bacteria and microorganisms more as people, you know, and there's Superman and Spider-Man and, um, there's superheroes and then they always have some sort of villain. Um, but it's more complicated because sometimes those villains yeah. are superheroes for other organisms or otherwise. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's depends on which it's a side very complicated world. Yes. I, I would say probably even, I don't know. Would you say it's, it's, it's more complicated or the microscopic and maybe there's not a, a, a real measure for this, but the microscopic versus the, the macro scopic, is it scopic as well? Or is it just macro? I think it's just macro. Okay. I, 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 don't, um, I don't know. The... I, think, I mean, that. I think this just gets into very deep theology. And I mean, this is one of those late night conversations you have with your friends of, you know, just simplicity and where the world came from and all of that. Cause I don't, I don't know. I think that the 
macroscopic world and the microscopic world are very complex and um, hard to definitely define. Because as it- soon as it, it's it's the same thing as like with humans. I mean, we do things that we we try to be good, but sometimes some people are bad, but they're maybe doing it for good good reasons that no one else understands. So you know, microorganisms kind of fall into that line too. I think. And, and that makes sense. I mean, thinking about it, microorganisms, it's very easy to oversimplify in descriptions or otherwise for, for creating an understanding of microorganisms, the same as can happen. I mean, people, like you're saying, can be uh, described and simplified, and, and, and that doesn't necessarily encompass all the complication or reality of the situation. So, I mean, yeah, I, I can agree with you. Both are, both are complex and... Um, I think the complexity is what makes it so fascinating. I mean, it's the same with with fermented foods. I mean, it's the complexity and flavor and aroma and occasionally the complexity and the challenge of, of creating those things such as aged cheeses for myself. And, um, you know, sometimes it's that complexity that, that, that is what draws me to these, these foods in the first place. Sure. Sure. I think a, a lot of attention is being brought to fermented foods and microorganisms too, because we don't really know. We're still, when I say we like researchers and people, um, we are, we don't, it was only recently that we discovered microorganisms and there's such a facet of information. Like it, you just end up down this whirlwind tunnel of figuring out, like just finding more stuff out about bacteria and microorganisms. So I think there's just more desire to figure it out than in maybe years past or maybe 50 years ago. You do bring up a good point. I mean, it wasn't really that long ago that, uh, wasn't it Louis Pasteur that, that was the first one to identify the microbial life forms? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago, and people the, in in the transformation. I think he was around in like the 1700s. So I mean, yeah, that and, I mean, relative to human existence, or or even any kind of scientific discovery in general. I mean, that's relatively, uh, relatively new findings. Before that, the transformative power of microorganisms were magic, and uh, these were gods, and and right. who knows what else. I mean, and now we see it's like, oh, these little teeny tiny things. And at first that might seem simple, but then we realize, oh, their world is just as complex as ours, if not more so maybe sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I just don't think we've really, I think we've just scratched the surface. Um, and to, you know, to talk a little bit about what we talked about in the last episode um, at the end of our Thanksgiving episode with fermentation um, or basically healthier microbiomes that NPR um, video and then the short, um, sound segment that went with it. Um, there was another one on, on Monday when I was, when I was driving, um, in the car and it's gut bacteria that may guide the works of our minds. And that itself, I mean, I was so intrigued. I listened to the whole thing. I think it's like 15 minutes long. I, I even pulled over just because I wanted to devote my attention to listening to it. Um, and that if everyone should have, you know, people should listen to it because it was talking about how your gut bacteria can affect um, how you, how your brain works. Um, and they're doing a lot of research on that. And I, that is such a new concept Like how before, like 10 years ago, it was more of how can we um, do this type of research and have concrete analytical results that we can reproduce over and over again. 
Well, and, and I remember the first time that I was, I was looking at the link between, um, mind and microbe and, and the microbiome. It's, it is very fascinating in the sense that, um, these microorganisms and then, you know, specifically to fermented foods, uh, is it possible that the fermented foods, uh, are affecting the microbiome of our, our bodies? And if so, is that then affecting our mind? Is that affecting our, uh, not just digestion, but this, this connection between the mind and, and the gut. I mean, that, that idea of a, of a gut feeling may be more realistic and even not our gut feeling as much as the gut feeling of the microbes. Yeah. Um, maybe an actual little literal term. <laughs> and that's what's, what's so interesting because obviously uh, for some reason this has, this has, this coevolution has occurred. And if it is true that the, that our mind really is being affected and is taking information, which it, it, all evidence seems to be pointing in this direction that, ev- that the mind is taking um, signals from bacteria in the gut and maybe elsewhere, but that somewhere along the line, I don't, I don't know if did any of your findings show why that might be the case as to what kind of symbiotic relationship, like what does that serve? Um, and, and then at the same time, it also really does all of these, all these things kind of really bring up for me. It's like, well, what does it really mean? What is on the philosophical side? What am I even in the sense of, of, you know, like, sure, I'm all these cells, but I'm also all these microbes. Um, oh yeah. You're all, I mean, that's you besides cells on your body and you're just a bun, you're a stack of enzymes and bacteria. <laughs> it sounds kind of gross, but that's really what it is. And um, I think that's really interesting. Um, but the research, when I looked into this topic a little more is they don't really know. I mean, this is, again, it's such a new idea of looking at how our brains work and, um, looking at the microbiome in our guts and how, um, you know, a healthy person's gut looks to maybe someone who has an autoimmune, autoimmune disease, um, and seeing if there is a difference between those types of you know, guts and microflora. And if you can feed the person with the autoimmune disease, um, the same type of bacteria that's found in a healthy person, does that alleviate the, the disease itself? Does the disease disappear or is it, does it stay the same? I mean, there's so much question, there's so much question or so many questions about it. Um, and from a, a blog post that I did many months ago, and I think even a, a podcast episode about um, about some microbiome research and specifically you're talking about other things, but specifically with, um, I can't think of what the, is it a yeast or a bacteria that, uh, infects the, the gut on certain people and causes inflammation and other issues, whatever it is, I can't think of it. I'll try and put it in the show notes and a, and a link to it, but in regard to doing, um, you know, uh, fecal transplants and how they're it's not about diet, but about actually putting poop from one person, a healthy person into another. And there are, uh, nearly instant recover, uh, changes. I mean, yes, it's something that has to be done, um, again, but that it is possible to inoculate someone's gut to at least work with some, uh, diseases. And, and so I could only see it being more so the case with, 
taking it farther and it's totally speculative, but I mean, if it does affect the mind, if it does affect other things, it's like these autoimmune diseases like you're talking about, or in regard to things like, uh, um, uh, depression or other, um, psychological challenges. Where is, where's the line between microbes and, and human drawn? And is it possible to alter the landscape of the microbes or in the microbiome and then affect drastically affect some different things? Now it's very easy to look at this as kind of like, like a, a potential panacea of, of healing. And, and obviously it's just one aspect of a larger whole. And it's just one that hasn't been paid as close of attention to for so long that you know, it's a, it's at least another place to go. And I'm sure that uh, over time, microbiome will hopefully get a lot more attention and, and things might lean a little bit too strong in the sense of like, oh, the microbiome can uh, solve everything and then eventually get back to the place of realizing that maybe it's more of a bigger balance. But who knows? Maybe it maybe it is the, the, the key to everything. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I, the, I mean, again, this is just brushing the surface and I think they're just laying the foundation for many years to come of research because it's it's hard to quantify when have reproducible results um, and consistencies if you're testing the bacteria in your gut which may change you, you know i don't know how frequently but if it's not consistent then you can't get consistent results but how that relates to brain um not development but um brain um for depression, um, those types of, I don't want to call them diseases, but, um, hardships that people go through. That could be, I think that was one of the, I think that was the example that they were giving for this NPR news report, um, about the workings of our brains, how it relates to slightly, I think a few people had depression. Um, but I mean, it's a really interesting topic and who knows? Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, this past weekend, who's a nutritionist, um, and she firmly believes that your um, bact- gut bacteria um, correlates with overall health. She's a big believer and um, advocate for fermented foods and incorporating fermented foods into your diet. Um, so we just had a long talk about how um, how that does affect health. So, I mean, people, I think people already realize it, just maybe not as talk- talking about it as much as they have in the past few years. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot more talk on the the health aspects of fermented foods and and you though did have a, I also saw you had an interesting link um that was also on NPR regarding the um can we alter the microbiome through diet and how you know that's that's still pretty new science. I mean, we don't really know for sure if uh, if eating certain things are really doing things kind of where I am at with all of, all of this. And, um, I, I can't remember exactly where, where I came to all of this, this conclusion, but, um, some based on evidence, some just based on, well, there's not any other information. So I got to kind of make it up in my own mind. And so for, for me with fermented foods and health or just any food, um, and, and digesting it, um, but specifically ones with microbes are that it's, like a communication of sorts, because there is research that shows that not all of the microbes that we eat, even if they're live, um, are, they don't necessarily colonize in our stomach because it's already an ecosystem of its own. Not you, 
it's not always possible to just introduce a new uh, new member and be like, hey, here you go. That's where those uh, those fecal transplants come in because it's inoculating with a much larger mass and then would go through uh, digesting food where it's like inoculated on a, on a big scale and 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 then it has the potential to to spread out and kind of uh, take over or make make itself at, at home. Whereas if it's just a, a few microbes going through they're kind of just going to get tossed through because it's like, Hey, this is our home buddy. Get out of here. And then, right. so, so in, in, in my mind, I kind of look at it as it's a communication source, whether it is just some microbes passing through being like, Hey, this is what it's like on the outside. And, uh, because like, I, I think about that as being like space travelers. I mean, uh, if, if we imagine some, some people, that have been out in space or aliens or however a person wants to look at it. Like if they came down and, and just even told us what things were like, and then went on their way that could drastically alter the way that we do things in the world. And so I feel like it could be the same way with microbes because they're much better at adapting and quicker than larger, more complicated organisms. So it would make sense. It's like, yeah, let's have some kind of communication going on with the outside world. Um, and I almost wonder if on the same level, if that's possible with even the, the, the dead microbes. So say cooking with fermented foods, I know some people really like to keep their foods live. Um, but for myself, I kind of think even, even cooking with microbes, it may be doing something because there's dead information there. Those microbes might be dead, but it's just like if, uh, we learned things about, um, uh, previous generations of, of humans by looking at remains. Why, sure. why couldn't uh, microbes be also doing this, the, doing the same thing with those dead microbes, because they're still going to be different, slightly different adapted. I mean, as we see with all kinds of things like um, uh, antibacterial resistant uh, bacteria and different things. I mean, microbes are constantly shifting and changing based on the outside environment and the inside environment inside of our, our gut or elsewhere in the body probably change a little slower, but in order to be able to keep up and keep um, doing their thing, whether or not a person wants to think of it as them helping us or as just, it's like a mutually beneficial relationship where, Hey, they are only going to be around as long as the, the human carrier is around. So uh, it's probably good that we uh, maybe they're able to help us react on a on a deeper uh, or a, on a, a much faster way than we could react otherwise. Um, sure. Well, and it's interesting that you brought that up because I I I think sometime in the near future we're going to be talking about um, going back to um, bacteriosins. But we I a few episodes ago I had talked about killer proteins that yeast produce in winemaking. Um, and an interesting thing that um, yeast do and some other types of bacteria is they communicate with each other. Um, and I say we're going to do this in a future episode because I need to do some research on it because it just was very intriguing that um, the way that you and I are communicating, bacteria also communicate in some way. So maybe um, they're communicating if the environment's too harsh, um, you know, to, hey, you need to turn on this mechanism to produce these bacteriosins. Um, and I don't, I don't, that's where it's kind of, I don't really know that much about it. So there needs to be some re I need to do some research on it, but bacteria can communicate with each other. Yeah. And I mean, communication being such a human type term can, uh, term can be kind of difficult to translate into a, uh, uh, most likely non-conscious sense, but I mean, it's, it's the reality. Yeah. There's communication going on. There's information being sent back and forth. I mean, it's just like computers communicate. I mean, uh, conscious or not. I mean, there's communication going on, on everywhere. And I just think that it's like all those microbes coming from the outside world. They're like, Hey, these, 
these humans or, or the weather or all some other plants and animals, things are crazy out here. Uh, and then they bring their, their photos to share with the other microbes and, um, <laughs> they, they look at them and they're like, Oh, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. Have fun on your way out. Um, and then they go wherever they go. Huh? That's, that's, that's my idea. Yeah, no, I think that it's totally in par with what actually happens inside your body. Um, or even during a fermentation, if you introduce something, um, some sort of bacteria that's not necessarily native to the culture, um, you know, they'll bring their pictures and talk about where they were and where they're going. And then they either die, um, or go into a dormant state. Um, and then you eat them and then that starts the whole process over again with those types of bacteria. It's again, I know we say a lot, but it's interesting. It's fascinating. It's uh, microbes are cool. Oh, they are. I mean, it's so fascinating. I I mean, there's just so much to talk about and not necessarily fermentation related, but just on the general topic of microorganisms. Um, you know, it's endless, endless, um, information. Yeah. So, I mean, I might've, you know, like I was excited to talk about this. So I just kind of jumped right in and, and just, we started talking about bacteriosins right away. Um, part of my thought with that too is, well, I wasn't really thinking about it when I did it, but in, in thinking in hindsight, it's really kind of one of those things where it's, it's not something that people are necessarily going to get excited about unless we really start just talking about it because I think this conversation is very fascinating, but the idea of, okay, bacteriosins sounds kind of okay. Kind of cool, maybe, but kind of just a boring microbiology word. Want, want. That doesn't yeah. sound like any fun. Exactly. So, I mean, hopefully this kind of information is interesting to people. Um, if, if, if you've listened this far, then it must have been so, or else you're very, very forgiving. Um, but we did have a few other things just in, in regard to more fermented talk, didn't we? I think so. Or, oh, I think so. There's I, a, I mean, there's mostly a lot of news articles about fermentation um, this week. Oh, did you see, uh, did you happen to look at those photos that I put a link to for, uh, the kimchi festival that was on oh, I did. weather.com? Yeah. That seems strange. Weather.com. Yeah. I, I, I tried searching elsewhere as well, but Hey, the, the photos, I mean, it was just like, uh, so-called 25 tons of, uh, kimchi being made. Uh, it looked like big, uh, tables set up, um, in some kind of town center or whatnot in, in, in Seoul and, and people were making a lot of kimchi and it was rubber gloves and uh, face masks. Yeah. And... I think that is hilarious. The rubber gloves, face masks, eye protection involved. <laughs> well, it's, but I mean, it, and it, and it, it can just seem kind of, kind of crazy or, or s- like a sanitation thing. But I, I, as far as I understand, a lot of that is because of the, uh, the pepper powder that's used um, because they're rubbing that into the leaves and sure. there it's, you know, it has potential to get in the eyes or, or in inhaling uh, pepper is definitely not very, very comfortable. So I think though, what I, I learned from this and I've seen those kind of images before, but with seeing that many people, I forget how many people were, were doing that. And, and I think it was, was all, or at least mostly Korean women because it's more of a traditional thing for, for women to do. But I, I know on a family scale, a lot of the family will, will do that. People that are still fermenting kimchi traditionally will get together once a year around this time-ish and, and start uh, and make it all together. But, you know, it's like, even though I'm not a Korean woman, 
I think I need the rubber gloves and face mask and, and do all that. Like, because I really want to do just a massive amount of kimchi at some point, like maybe a 55 gallon drum full of, uh, of, of kimchi at least. Um, because so much kimchi, (laughs) it would be a lot of kimchi. And especially for you who doesn't seem to really like kimchi. Have you tried it? Well, it hasn't been long enough, but are you going to try it again? I, I have been meaning to make some, um, I've been pretty busy the past few weeks. Um, I just moved into a new house. So that's kind of taken a lot of my time. Um, but it's on my list of things to do. Plus also I was, um, speaking of home fermentations and whatnot, I wanted to update everyone about my cranberries, my fermented cranberries that we mentioned during our Thanksgiving episode, not to digress, but, um, are they bubbly? it's bubbling. Yeah. It's not a vigorous bubbling. Um, I think, but what Amanda had said, um, yeah. On fickle.com. Her, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's bubbling and you can tell that they're changing in consistency and becoming slightly translucent. Um, but so, yeah, I'm really excited to try them next week. I'm going to give them another week for, um, Thanksgiving. Um, people will be listening to this episode the Monday before Thanksgiving. So they'll have to find out the following Monday on, I think like December 2nd or 3rd, how they turned out. Cause I'll let everyone know. So sorry, I digressed. Well, hey, no, I mean to make some kimchi. It's on, it's on my list of things to do. Oh, see, I thought you were just avoiding it and trying to change the subject and you weren't going to come back to it, which is totally fine too. It's understandable. Um, again, yeah, you just moved. I mean, do you, uh, in where you're living now, do you have, um, any good spots for fermentation? Like, have you, have you gone through with a thermometer and, and measured? It's like, okay, this is a warmer spot in my house. This is a cooler spot or, um, do you no, have- I, I have a lot more space. Um, I don't have, my kitchen is not as big as it was before. So I don't have as much counter space. Um, but we have like one, an old, we live, our house is probably built in like the 19, 19- 30s or so. So we have a lot of built-in cabinets. So a lot of those places, I'm sure that I can rig up some sort of heat lamp or put it next to the window that gets certain light at certain times of day. And um, there's a lot more options here than at my other place. And this is a total lack of, of knowing because I know every region's a little different. Do you have basements where you're at? No, basements uh, are um, very, very rare in Southern California. And Same with attics. We don't, no yeah. one really has an attic or a second story. They're mostly just singles or at least where I live. I live in, um, North park, which is, you know, 10 minutes from downtown San Diego. Um, but yeah, mostly all the houses here, are one story homes from the twenties and thirties. So you really are kind of limited on limited on the, the drastic. I mean, it sounds like like you're saying, you sound pretty optimistic that you have a lot of different places to put things, but to a certain extent, unless you wanted to build an incubator or have some kind of uh, incubator, then you don't get the nice stable underground temperatures. What about root cellars? Are are there any of those around there ever that you see? Um, oh, there's a lot of crawl spaces, but not a deep root cellar that you could store stuff in. Do you have, um, a, do you have there, a crawl space? I think, or I have, I'm sure this house has a crawl space. Um, and when I was outside actually earlier today, I was, kind of exploring the backyard. Um, it looks like there's, um, one of those, I, you know, I forget what they're called. Um, the storm, the storm sh- shelter doors, like from the wizard of Oz that, sure. you know, you would, you'd be outside and you'd see a tornado coming, you open it up and you go into the storm cellar, close the doors. So it looks like we have one of those. I just haven't had the, 
I haven't been brave enough to go down there by myself. I oh, don't that, know what to expect. There's a lot like of a, um, spiders here. That sounds like a perfect place to uh, to ferment some stuff. Yeah. So I'll have to tell everyone um, once I gain up the courage, maybe I can get my husband to do it um, and clean it out a little bit. And I'll let everyone know what's down there. But you have a basement. Do you, you do most of your fermentations in your basement, right? Well, it's kind of a, it really depends. I mean, a lot of times I'll leave things upstairs, at least for the initial fermentation to kind of kickstart things um, so that I can see that they're actively fermenting. And then sometimes I'll move them down. A lot of things do stay upstairs. One thing that I have, okay, well, I guess as I'm saying this, I realize I've already kind of do, have stopped doing this, but for a long while I was really getting much better at staying uh, adamant about leaving most things that were fermenting with a closed lid without an airlock or something else. Mm -hmm. If it was sealed that I was putting them in a cupboard because I don't know if it, I don't know when it was a while ago, um, uh, quite a few months back had a explosion of, I think it was water kefir and, oh, uh, you know, it just really kind of put it in perspective of how scary, uh, and a pressurized glass explosion can be. I wasn't home, but my wife, and, uh, at that point, I don't know how young my son was, but definitely an infant. And, uh, she heard what sounded like a, uh, I don't know, a bomb or what she said it, it sounded like, but you know, it's a, it's a big kind of explosion. And then there's glass shards everywhere in the kitchen. Luckily she wasn't out there doing dishes, which she had been doing 20 minutes prior. So wow, I, it, it was just when I, when I got home and still was finding glass shards kind of sprayed across, uh, into other parts of the house, um, it's very rare. I mean, I haven't had that happen. I've been fermenting for years, but, uh, the first time I, because I, I kind of read that like, uh, jars can explode or different things can happen. But for the most part, I was, you know, I was like, okay, well, I've, I've only heard of someone that knows someone has had that happen or otherwise, like I'd never seen anyone that had actually had it happen, but now I've had it happen. And, um, it was kind of freaky. So well, I'm sure. I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, knock on wood, I've never had that happen to me. Um, I think it would just be terrifying. You're sitting there. That happened to me. I made some um, wine a long time ago, like in 2008. It was a white wine and I didn't uh, filter it as well as I, I, I was busy and I was like, whatever, it's fine. It'll be fine. Nothing's ever happened. Um, and I had it, I was, I had it stored in uh, my bedroom at the time. And in the middle of the night, um, all the corks started coming out. And I mean, that, that was just like a champagne cork popping but it was louder and it's oh scared the living daylights out of me because I didn't, you know, I wasn't expecting it. It was like two in the morning. Um, so it was just a mess to clean up. I was so mad at, at myself for not taking the time to really clean it out um, before I bottled it. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, well, it seems like even uh, you wine and beer people have even more chance of those kind of explosions. I mean, when I started looking into it, it seemed like a lot, there was a lot more uh, cases of, of that going on. And, and I realized that my issue was more so that I was using a, um, a flip top bottle, but it wasn't, um, like the, what is that Belgian style bottle or for, for beer when it's got the flip top. Oh it's yeah. Like, it's like Belgian. Yeah. It's mostly like Belgian beers, um, Lambic, Lambic style beers, but that's, those are from usually from Belgium. Okay. Yeah. I think that's what the local beer shop calls them too. And, um, and you know, it wasn't one of those, it was just one from like a, a food store 
And I think it was probably more for say olive oil or otherwise. So it was much, it was probably a thinner glass to begin with. So I was already oh, setting okay. myself up for failure. Um, but even still, like uh, I read, I was reading things about growler uh, bottles, half gallon bottles uh, busting and different things like that. If, if a person's uh, fermentation is active enough, and especially when a person's dealing with, with liquids, it seems like it's even can potentially be more aggressive once someone's dealing with uh, uh, trying to carbonate something. Yeah. And mostly those, I mean, if you go get a growler at a brewery or you buy one, it, the glass is a lot thicker than, um, other types of glass. They're more, they're, they kind of have the same thickness as even like a Mason jar. Cause those are pretty thick too, since those are usually used for, um, you know, canning and pressure cookers. Yeah. And it, so. and, and it also, I guess, depends on what kind of lid of, like, I think a lot of growlers come with, uh, just plastic screw on lids, correct? Isn't that a lot of times or I think it just depends on the oh, okay. brewery. Um, I think it's a personal because we have some growlers from um, that have the Belgian style uh, cork where you it's um, what, you, what you're talking about, where it's a plastic piece that fits over the opening and then you kind of close it with some wires. Sure. Um, and then some of them, we just have a plastic lid that you screw on top of it. So I think it just depends. It's, it seems like the plastic ones would at least be safer because the pressure is most likely, I mean, well, it's going to take the path of least resistance uh, and, and the plastic ones at least seem like they'll bust off. Whereas the, that wire can hold things down pretty good, but yeah, like you're saying, it's oh, yeah. thicker glass anyway, so it should be safer. Yeah. No, I just have a hard time opening those bottles just because if there is a lot of pressure, um, you know, for example, we'll use it to one of our favorite uh, breweries down the street from us. That's how the cap is for um, the their growler. And whenever we go and they close it, whenever I, whenever I get home, I just can't open it. It's just too much pressure in there. It's kind of sucking it in or creating some type of vacuum that makes it really hard to release it. So there's no trick of the trade, no secret way to no, get it open. No, just... no, I I have no, I haven't figured it out yet. Maybe someone knows. Well, uh, until then, we'll just have to just. Just be careful. Everyone be careful. Just be careful. And if anybody has any suggestions on how to open growler, yeah. please let us know. Yes. Um, I think that pretty much wraps up our, our episode for this time. I mean, and, and, and do, if anyone has any questions about any of these, these topics on microorganisms or bacteriosins or, or anything like that, or about anything, I mean, definitely, definitely send them our way because, or, or corrections too, because as you can see, sometimes, you know, we know some bit about these things, but then we're just looking up a bit more because it's, it's fascinating stuff. But, uh, I'm sure there's someone out there that knows plenty more about some of these topics. Um, and so definitely send them our way. If we, if we need to correct something, we'll, uh, at least, at least I'm more than happy to, uh, follow up and say, Hey, I did not have that right. So. Right. Yeah. And I mean, whoever it is might have some more information that can explain, or maybe they can explain it better than we can. Yeah. So please, please email us. Yes, please, please email us. No, we, 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 we get emails and questions and different things. So yeah, I just want to make sure that people know that it's like, we, uh, we welcome everyone's questions, big or small. And uh, other than that, I mean, you can send your questions to podcast at firmup.com. And uh, you can find the show notes for this episode with uh, links to a few of those news articles that we we're talking about at firmup.com slash podcast slash 41. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at FirmUp, Facebook at FirmUp, and Google Plus at Plus FirmUp. And until next time, think about bacteriosins and don't forget to uh, firm up. <laughs>